0: Good morning. Please take your copy of God's Word and turn to Luke chapter 14. The Gospel of St. Luke chapter 14, we'll be looking at verses 25 through 35 as we discuss the three marks of a true disciple. The three marks of a true disciple found in Luke chapter 14, 25 through 35. The Bible says, Now large crowds were going along with Him, and He turned and said to them, If anyone comes to Me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brother and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be My disciple. Whosoever does not carry his own cross and come after Me cannot be My disciple. For which one of you, when he wants to build a tower, does not first sit down and calculate the cost to see if he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who observe it begin to ridicule him, saying this man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king, when he sets out to meet another king in battle, will not first sit down and consider whether he is strong enough with 10,000 men to encounter the one coming against him with 20,000? Or else, while the other is still far away, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So then, none of you can be my disciple, who does not give up all his own possessions, therefore, salt is good, but if it, but if even salt has become tasteless, with what will it be seasoned? It is useless either for the soul, soil, or for the manure power, for the manure pile. it is thrown out. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Father, we ask you in Jesus' name to speak to us these uh, transformative truths. We ask, Father, that You would do the work in our minds, and our hearts, Father, in our souls that must be done with this, uh, with this extreme call to the nature of true discipleship. We ask this in the name of Christ Jesus. Amen. The Gospel call sinners to self-denial, challenging to take up their cross daily and to follow Jesus Christ. Unreservedly they are to do this. It is a God-centered exercise that is not man-centered. It calls for self-abasement, not self-love. It calls for self-sacrifice, not self-fulfillment. And is spiritually focused, not psychologically motivated those who respond to it willingly submit everything they have and are to the Lord Jesus Christ. In the book, Hard to Believe, the true gospel has increasingly been replaced by a consumer-friendly counterfeit, according to its author, who says the first role of successful merchandising is to give consumers what they want. If they want bigger burgers, make the burgers bigger designer bottled designer bottled water is six fruit flavors done minivans with 10 cup holders give them 20 you got to keep the consumer satisfied you got to modify your products and your message to meet the needs if you want to build a market and get ahead of the competition today the same consumer mindset has invaded christianity the author says the church service is too long you say We'll shorten it. One pastor guarantees his sermons will never last more than seven minutes. Too formal? Wear your sweatsuit. Too boring? Wait and you'll hear it. Wait till you hear our band. And if the measure is too confrontational, the message is too confrontational too judgmental or too exclusive, scary, unbelievable, hard to understand, or too much of anything else of your taste. Churches everywhere are eager to adjust that message to make you more comfortable. This new version of Christianity makes you a partner on the team, a design consultant on church life, and does away with old-fashioned authority, guilt, trips, accountability, and moral absolutes. One suburban church sent out a mailer recently promising an informal, relaxed, casual atmosphere, great music from our band, and that those who come will, believe it or not, even have fun. That's all great if you're a coffee house, but anyone who claims to be calling people to the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ with those as His priorities is calling them simply to die. If Christianity is, it's Christianity for consumers. In fact, the author says it's Christianity light. The redirection, watering down, and misinterpretation of the biblical gospel in an attempt to make it more palatable and popular. It tastes great going down, but it settles light. It seems to salve your feelings and scratch your itch. It's custom tailored to your preferences. But the lightness will never fill you up with the true saving gospel of Jesus Christ, because it is designed by man and not by God, and it is hollow and worthless. In fact, it is worse than worthless because people who hear the message of Christianity Light think they're hearing the gospel, think they're being rescued from eternal judgment, when in fact they are being tragically misled. The true gospel is the call to self-denial. It is not of self-fulfillment. And that puts in opposition to the contemporary evangelical gospel where ministers view Jesus as a utilitarian genie. You rub the lamp and He jumps out and says, you have whatever you want. You give Him your list and He delivers. Again, that is from the book Hard to Believe by Dr. John MacArthur. In contrast to Christianity light, the true Christian gospel does not offer heaven on earth, but heaven and heaven as i have said before we do not win here we don't win in this world we win in the next it produces genuine disciples of the lord jesus christ not superficial hanger on hangers on the section on uh, as this section is a threefold repetition of the term disciple in verse 26 27 and 33 indicates it is about what it means to be a genuine follower of christ it is an evangelistic call by Jesus to come to Him. This is actually Jesus preaching the gospel, which is to come after Him and to be a real disciple, not a would-be potential or peripheral one. The Greek word for disciple is a Greek word that has a broad term that identifies a learner or a student. It is the word mathetites. Mathetites. It's in ancient Jewish, in ancient Jewish culture, cultures, rabbis were in itinerant, traveling about, accompanied by their disciples. Though he never was recognized as a religious leader of the establishment or a, or a rabbi, Jesus often was called a rabbi. And in part, like other rabbis, he was a traveling teacher who had people following him. Those early disciples were varying levels of commitment in the way they followed Him, ranging from fully committed to nominally committed, ultimately to uncommitted curiosity seekers. In a course of His ministry, Jesus made the requirement for being a genuine disciple clearer and expressed them in more absolute terms as He walked with them. As a result, the superficial disciples began to abandon Him, as you can read in John 6.60 or Luke 8.13-14 especially as Israel's attitude, for example, towards Him hardened into its unbelief and rejection. And by the time His ministry drew to a close, Jesus had become even more definitive about discipleship. The term disciple underwent a metamorphosis, if you will, and took on a purer, more restricted meaning so that the book of Acts is, it became synonymous for Christians. So the word disciple became so specific, so narrow, so focused in that they called those disciples of Jesus Christians. I would point out at this point that people might today call themselves Christians and they have never been disciples. They have never been disciples of Jesus. They're just Christian light. And so it would seem to me that just from the truth of the text and the example of Jesus' ministry, just looking what Jesus taught, just studying the red letters, it would see that those that became Christians were those who truly believed into Him. They paid into it. They got into it. They gave their life into it. They didn't make a superficial decision or some kind of social prayer. Instead, they were all in. And then those people that were all in, oddly enough, were called Christians. Boy, we are far, far away from that today. In the previous chapter of Luke's Gospel, it closed with the Lord's pronouncement of judgment on the nation of Israel and its leaders for rejecting Him. This is found in in, uh, verses 34 and 35 of chapter 13. And Jesus still invited, though, G- G- individuals to, hit, to be His disciples, as He did in this passage in verse 8, and in chapter 18, 18 through 24. He was always inviting people to follow Him. And this, this section comes at a strategic point in Luke's Gospel. It's obvious from the preceding passage that uh, the Jewish religious leaders confident in their own law-keeping their tradition and rituals did not know how to be saved and therefore could not lead the people to salvation we read this in chapter 6 verse 39 and it parallel in Matthew 23:15 they trusted in their religious ceremonies and, and their moral achievements, refusing though to humble themselves which resulted in their being shut out of the Kingdom of God, which Jesus says in Luke chapter fourteen twenty four, along with all that followed them. So all that followed those with their moral attainments and their, and their, their religious rituals and their traditions and law keeping, they were just as lost with them. In fact, I believe this is called the blind leading the blind. They could lead no one to salvation and only, the only thing they did, Jesus said in Matthew twenty three fifteen, they produced sons of hell. They produced sons of hell. In contrast, though, to the religious leaders' damning ignorance, Luke records Jesus' authoritative teaching on the true way to salvation. Remember the Lord used several metaphors to describe salvation, such as entering the Kingdom of God, having eternal life, and being confessed by Him before God and the holy angels. And He equated salvation with becoming His disciple. All of that is right here in the Gospel of Luke. Some however, in serious error, misconstrue the Lord's teaching here and deny that it's an invitation to salvation. They look at this very text that says discipleship tested in some of your Bible translations. They look at this and say this cannot be the gospel. This cannot be a way of invitation to salvation. They suggest that Jesus is addressing here those who had already been saved, but they, that were not already following Him. Those who acknowledged Him as Savior, but not as Lord. They, they thought of Him as a Savior, but not as the Lord of their life. In Jesus', in Jesus way, In Jesus' way they maintain, calling such people to move from salvation to a higher level of commitment and become disciples. This passage is for people that go into vocational missions, and vocational ministry, and the pastorate, and the seminaries, and so forth, confusing. In fact, Paul's terminology, we could say they were urging them to stop being carnal Christians and become spiritual Christians. So what Jesus is doing by many interpreters today is they look at this text and say, this has nothing to do with the gospel or salvation. This has to do with maturing in faith. But that turns our Lord from an evangelist into a deeper and higher life teacher. That turns him into a guru. It turns him into a philosopher even though He explicitly said that He came to seek and to save that which is lost in Luke 19.10, and that He did not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance in Luke 5.32. So to believe that this text is anything other than the gospel is to be ignorant of the meaning of the text. The text means what it says and it says what it means. And the context gives it up. So don't bring your pretext to it. It is in context. Jesus is saying this is how you know you are my disciple. And as noted above in the book of Acts, disciple is used synonymously with Christian. Therefore to become a disciple of Christ is not to move to a higher plane in the Christian life. It is to be saved. It is to pass from death to, to life, from darkness to light, from Satan's kingdom to life in Christ. And what Jesus asked for in this passage is amazingly extreme. He did not call for a makeover. He demanded a takeover. He didn't call for a makeover. He demanded a takeover. He challenged sinners to acknowledge Him as sovereign Lord, divine dictator, ruler, controller, king, and master of their lives. And He never called for anyone to pray a short, easy prayer to receive eternal life. Nor did He manipulate anyone to make an emotional decision or give a false assurance of salvation to one who has a shallow interest. He never taught that the way to heaven is broad and easy, but He warned the gate is small and the way is narrow that leads to life. And few will ever find it. And he said that people would have to force their way into the kingdom in Luke 16, 16. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. And he cautioned, But he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven, he is the one who entered in Matthew 7:21. Only those who continue in his word, and those who live manifest, who manifest the fruit of salvation, are truly his disciples. And only disciples are saved from hell's judgment. That's what Jesus says and if Jesus says it, that settles it. Truly friends, truly friends, the Lord's evangelistic methodology is in striking contrast to that of the pop church approach today. It is a fact, pastors and evangelists, Pursuing mass responses seek to eliminate the barriers and make it as easy as possible for people to respond to the message. However, Jesus did the exact opposite. He made extreme, exclusive, and absolute statements to discourage superficial responders, saying, do not think that I came to bring peace on the earth. He declared, I did not come to bring peace. I came to bring a sword in Matthew 10.34. And for example, in two brief parables, Jesus likened salvation of God's kingdom to a hidden treasure and a valuable pearl, which people sold all they had, all they possessed, to obtain. And it may be necessary to give up families and possessions for His sake and the Gospel, He says in Mark 10, 29-30. And the face the world of hatred, He says in John 15, 18-19. Thus the Lord solemnly warned would-be followers, if anyone wishes to come after Me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow Me. Because he who loves his life loses it, and he who Hates his life in this world will keep it to life eternal. Again, Jesus settles it. This passage does not reveal every aspect of salvation truth. The whole Bible, from Genesis 1 1 to Revelation 22, is the revelation of salvation truth. But it does not mention in this passage God's holiness. It doesn't mention in this passage human sin. In this passage it doesn't men, men, mention divine judgment. It doesn't talk about Christ's saving work on the cross or salvation by grace through faith. That It's not mentioned in here, but I will tell you, people don't care about God's holiness. He's holy and we're not. People are not interested in giving up their human sin. They don't think about divine judgment in this age or Christ's work on the cross, or the salvation is by grace through faith. Oh no, they don't think about those things, and yet that's part of the Gospel. And yet Jesus right here focuses not on the objective facts of the Gospel, but rather on the subjective attitude of the radical extreme faith commitment that He calls for, that must exist in the heart of those who trust Jesus Christ savingly. And those who fall short of such a commitment to Him will perish eternally. That's it. That's it. To fall short is to perish forever. Brothers and sisters, I have already said this. The gospel is not, the gospel is a takeover, not a makeover. The gospel is a takeover, not a makeover. Heaven awaits those who give up everything. Heaven awaits those who repent. heaven, Heaven awaits those who raise the empty hands of faith and confess the Lord Jesus Christ and confess themselves as slaves, as His slaves as they receive the free gift of salvation. And this text reveals three things that mark a true disciple of Jesus Christ. This text marks three things gives three marks of what a true disciple of Jesus Christ looks like. And the first one is this, the abandonment of past priorities the abandonment of past priorities. He says in verse 25, Now large crowds were going along in him and with him, and he turned and he said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brother and sister, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whosoever does not carry his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. And in verse thirty. 31, I'm sorry, in verse 33, he says, So then, none of you can be my disciple who does not give up all of his possessions. You see, Jesus summarizes the priorities of the unregenerate under three general headings self, relationship, and possessions. If you're thinking about anything right now about what I'm saying and what Jesus Christ is calling for, you're thinking at least of one of those. Yourself, your relationships, or your possessions. Even at this late stage, the rejection set and the cross only months away, Jesus still attracted large crowds, as the Scripture says, and was going, that were going along with Him as He made His final journey to Jerusalem. The actual location of this incident is not really known. This is not the first teaching Jesus had done though on the the journey because we see it in the context. Many who heard His teaching on this occasion heard His extended discourse when He is traveling that begins in Luke chapter 1, I'm sorry, Luke chapter 12 verse 1 and goes through Luke 13 verse 9. So Jesus has been teaching this whole time up to this point. And you can read on this journey, it started in Luke 12 and it ends in Luke 13 verse 9. And that instruction included several more components of his evangelistic preaching of the gospel, such as his calling on the hearers to avoid the influence of religion, understanding that they are under God's scrutiny, to fear God as as the judge of sin, and to confess Jesus as Lord and Savior, to listen to the Holy Spirit, to abandon materialism, to seek God's kingdom, to be ready for the second coming, to settle their accounts with God before it's too late, and to realize that they are living on borrowed time. You know every bit of that? You can go find that in in beginning in verse 1 of chapter 12 to the end of chapter 13, verse 9. Now this section on radically changed priorities the Lord calls for is an extreme devotion. First, anyone who comes to Jesus for salvation must prefer God over his family. I want you to write that down. The first thing he talks about is anyone who comes to Jesus for salvation must prefer God over his family. This is becoming more and more of an issue today. I'm afraid to say, Coming to Christ is terminology for the initial expression of saving faith. A person who does so, Jesus declared, must hate his own father, his mother, his wife, his children, brother, and sisters. His own own stresses, and the phrase, his own stresses the natural priorities of and the normal affections for one's own family. Salvation brings turmoil, brothers and sisters. Quit, Quit asking your pastor to, to stop saying things that don't make people comfortable. Salvation brings turmoil into the home as new believers attempt to coexist with non-believers. Do you know what? This is going to happen in the visible church as well. There are going to be people over here saying amen on one side and those on the other saying oh me on the other. It, the gospel of Christ brings division from those who are perishing to those who are being saved family members who reject the gospel may be ostracized, may ostracize those who believe it. And in Matthew ten thirty four through 36 Jesus warned that families would be divided over Him. He said, Do not think that I have come to bring peace on the earth. I didn't come to bring peace but a sword, for I came to set man against his father, and a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, and a man's enemies will be the members of his own household. And understand the Lord's teaching that this is a necessary it is necessary to hate. I said hate. H-A-T-E. Jesus says hate. One's family is not inconsistent with the Bible command which says that children are to honor their parents. Husbands are to love their wives. Wives are to love their husbands. And parents are to love their children. Because hate is in the context is a Semitic way of expressing preference. So here is an answer to many questions that many of you have asked over the course of these of your Christian life. What does it mean when he says hate? What does it mean when God said I hate? Jacob I loved Esau I hated. What does he mean when he says I have loved Jacob I have hated Esau? The point is not that God has animosity towards Esau but rather that he preferred Jacob by giving his promises through him. Similarly, in Genesis 29, 31, it records that Leah was in love. The Hebrew word there literally means hated by Jacob. He did not mean that he despised and detested Leah, but he loved Rachel the more. Those of you that know your biblical history know what we're talking about there. So it it does not mean this animosity or to despise. It means to prefer one over another. And that's literally what the word means. Our English word just puts the emotion and the sense to it so that we can move beyond just preference. Preference is too weak of a word for we English speakers. Hatred, on the other hand, is as strong in English as preference is in Hebrew. Okay? To prefer something over another. And to hate one's family is to, pervert, is to prefer God over them by disregarding what they desire if that conflicts with what God Commands. Let me say that again. To hate one's family is to prefer God over them by disregarding what they desire if, they, if that conflicts with what God requires. It is to love God more and the family less. I'm going to tell you, There are plenty of people that cannot be disciples of Jesus for that very point right there. And I'm going to tell you something else. Those that were following Him on that road in Luke chapter 12 to verse 13, chapter 13, the numbers He started with were not the numbers He ended with. If Jesus Christ was a pastor of a local church that didn't have its own building, and was moving around and and people in the church began concerned that it wasn't growing or doing what was happening uh, and looking at all the peripheral things, I'm going to tell you something. They would have fired him. They would have run him off if they could. And yet what was Jesus doing? Jesus was preaching the gospel. And that gospel is being heard today. If people could look at the church that would have run him off back then or abandoned him back then and look at the visible church today where there are preachers today that are preaching the Word of God with great clarity, with great conviction and passion and holiness. They're on fire with the Lord. As I've said again, I'll say it again, there's only two kinds of preachers preaching this this morning, this Sunday morning. Those who are preaching the Word of God and those who need to resign. That's it. That's all, that's all you have. Those who are preaching the Word of God and those that need to resign. Jesus Christ was sitting here. He says, "If He who loves father and mother more than me is not worthy of me. He said, He who loves his son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. That's Matthew 10.37. He meant what He said and He says what He means. All other love must be subordinate to loving God with all of one's heart, soul, mind, and strength, as He says in Luke 10.27. Listen, Jesus' words would have been clearly understood in the context of the first century, and you need to hear what I'm saying. Listen, because when Jewish people made a commitment to Jesus Christ, they would be alienated from their families. The great professor Daryl Bach notes these words. At that time, a Jewish person who made a choice for Jesus would alienate his or her family. If someone desired desired acceptance by family more than a relationship with God, one might never come to Jesus given the rejection that would inevitably follow. In other words, there could be no casual devotion to Jesus in the first century. Let me say that again. There could be no casual devotion to Jesus in the first century. A decision for Christ marked a person and automatically came with a cost. The contemporary comparison may be seen certain formerly certain formerly Communist Eastern European settings as Muslim countries or in tight-knit Asian families. You, you convert and become a follower of Jesus, you're done in. I, at the very least, you're thrown out. The modern Western phenomenon that we live in where a decision for Christ is popular in a large social community was not what Jesus' Jesus's setting was all about, which, which complicates our understanding of the significance of a decision to associate with Christ. People would not come to Christ in His setting the way they do in this one. There was a true cost to coming to follow Jesus in that day. And Jesus is telling us through Scripture, 2,000 years old, that cost has not changed. That cost has not changed. You will have to deny yourself, your family and everything you have, your your own relationships and your possessions to follow Him. That's what He is saying. Nothing has changed. And yet in our contemporary culture, especially here in, our, in America, where everybody's prayed to receive Jesus once or twice and live like the devil three times or four, the reality of it is no one. it is it doesn't seem very evident that we can have fellowship with many who are willing to pay the cost, much less listen and learn about it. And so Bach goes on to say, Today one might associate with Christ simply because it is culturally appropriate rather than for true spiritual reasons. Such as a decision, was in, such a decision was absolutely impossible in the first century. If one chose to be associated with Jesus, one received a negative reaction often from within the home. That comes from the exe- exegetical commentary on the New Testament written in 1996. So, you know, back in the 90's, you had the explosion of the seeker-sensitive movement. And so, what, a, what an apropos word we have. Second, a person who would not come to Jesus must hate his, even his own life, or he cannot be his disciple. The call to salvation is a call to self-denial. I'd like you to write that down. The call to salvation is a call to self-denial. It marks the end of a sinner being the reigning authority of their lives. That's what it marks. And calls them instead to submit as slaves to, th- as slaves as Je- to Jesus as their Lord, King, and Master. And the, selfless ex- and the selflessness extends to the point of death as Jesus' next statement, whoever does not carry his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. It's just what He says. It's Luke chapter 9, 23 through 25. We just talked about this in a message a couple weeks ago. You might look it up. The heavenly treasure is so valuable. The pearl of salvation is so precious. The true disciples are willing to give up their lives if God so wills to gain eternal life. And Jesus calls for self-abandonment. It calls for self-abandonment. And it must be noted that this is not a meritorious pre-salvation work that somehow earns justification. No, it's not. Because salvation, Paul insisted, is by grace through faith and that not of yourself, it's the gift of God. Jesus even declared that no one can come to Him unless He has been granted it from the Father. But salvation is not apart from the sinner's will. Salvation, it, now listen to me carefully, salvation is not apart, is not apart from the sinner's will. Jesus called people to repent and believe the gospel. He warned unbelievers, unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Peter challenged the hearers to repent and return that your sins may be wiped away. Paul preached that God is now declaring to all men that all people everywhere should repent. And those command presuppose the sinner's responsibility to obey them for which he is enabled by the Spirit of God. So first, anyone who comes to Jesus for salvation must prefer God over family. Second, a person who would come to Jesus must hate even his own life or he cannot be his disciples. But finally, a person who would be Christ's disciple must give up all his own possessions. That's what Jesus says in verse 33. The phrase, none of you, includes everyone, and the word all encompasses not just money, but material goods as well. There are no exceptions or exemptions to these absolute unqualified requirements. The word here, give up, is a Greek word that literally means to take leave of to take leave of, or to say goodbye to, or to walk away from. It was his unwillingness to surrender his possessions that caused the rich young ruler to turn away from Christ and be eternally lost. Jesus is not advocating however socialism or getting rid of everyone and getting rid of everything and living a life of poverty and being a beggar. His point is that those who would do his those who would be his disciples must recognize that they are stewards of everything. They are stewards of everything and owners of nothing. They are stewards of everything and owners of nothing and the Lord asked them to give up all that they would be all that they would be willing because loving obedience is their highest duty and joy. They're supposed to give up everything willingly. Let me quote to you the great Baptist theologian Leon Morris, the he's actually a church historian he says this. He says, the lesson is plain. Jesus does not want followers to rush into discipleship without thinking about what is involved. And he is, he is clear about the price. The man who comes to him must renounce all that he has. These words condemn all half-heartedness. Jesus is not, of course, d- discouraging discipleship. He is, he is, he is warning against an ill-considered, faint-hearted attachment in order that men may know the real thing. He, he wants them to count the cost and to reckon all lost for His sake so that they, cannot, so they can enter the exhilaration of full-blooded discipleship. That comes from the Tyndale New Testament commentaries. So you have, first of all, the abandonment of past priorities. Next, you have the appraisal of present powers. Number two, you have, the pres- you have the appraisal of present powers, understanding the sacrifice required when making a commitment to Christ. As we shall see... These two illustrations right here demonstrate the importance of understanding the sacrifice required to making a commitment to Christ. Beginning in verse 28, For which one of you, when he wants to build a tower, does not sit down and calculate the cost to see if he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish it, all who observe it will begin to ridicule him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king, when he is set out to meet another king in battle, will not first sit down and consider whether He is strong enough with 10,000 men to encounter the one coming against Him with 20,000, or else while the other is still far away, He sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So you have an appraisal of present powers. And so He gives these two illustrations, and it was true of all of Jesus' illustrations and parables, and they describe situations that are familiar to His listeners, both at that time and now. And the point is this, people must count the cost before undertaking any important task in life. How much more important is it to count the cost before giving oneself, or in committing oneself to Christ, just considering what we have already seen? Well, the first illustration pictures a man contemplating building a tower This could have been a watchtower for protection from enemies or a storage tower for his good. For sure either one would have been a visible construction project and everyone in the community would have known about it because they would be seeing the tower be built. Preserving one's honor and avoiding bringing shame on oneself and one's family were elevated matters in the Ancient Near East, indeed today we live in a shameless society, but back then they wouldn't want to bring dishonor upon themselves. And thus this man, for this man to have laid the foundation, and then as the text says, not been able to finish, would have brought shame on his family and himself. It would have made him the laughing stock of the community. And as the text said, as all who saw the unfinished tower began to ridicule ridicule him, saying, this man, which is a derogatory, contemptuous expression, began to build and was not able to finish." In other words, the Greek word there is completely or totally finished the task. It wasn't half done, it just was completely not finished. That's what's happening. "...Therefore, to avoid such devastating blow to his honor and prestige, a man considering to build a tower would first sit down and calculate to see what the cost is, and if he had enough to complete it." That's the first illustration. And whereas the first illustration pictures a voluntary act, the second illustration depicts a man thrust into an involuntary dilemma. An involuntary dilemma beyond his control. And we see Jesus ask His hearers to consider a king preparing to meet another king before confronting the attacking king in in combat? Would he not first sit down and consider, as the text says, whether he is strong enough with 10,000 men to encounter one that's coming against him with twice as many? Would he not assess what logistics, terrain, weaponry, and what strategic and tactical advantages he might outweigh his opponent's numerical superiority? If not, to proceed with the battle would be suicidal folly, both of the king and his men, and it had no possibility of victory. His only sensible recourse would, as the text says, while the other king is still far away, send a a delegation and negotiate for terms of peace. Brothers and sisters, listen to me. Both of these stories in them, Jesus showed the wisdom of carefully assessing your commitment involved in following Jesus. Jesus did not want emotional-driven, superficial, self-seeking, temporary, transient followers like those represented by the rocky and thorny souls in the soil of the parable of the sower. Why? Because real faith endures to the end. Real faith endures to the end. John Stott, I just finished this book entitled Basic Christianity. It's written in 1978. I commend this book to you. John Stott writes concerning the importance of counting the cost of commitment, and he says this, "...the Christian landscape is strewn with the wreckage of derelict half-built towers." The ruins of those who began to build and were unable to finish. For thousands of people still ignore Christ's warning and undertake to follow Him without first pausing to reflect on the cost of doing so. This result is a great scandal of Christendom today. So-called nominal Christianity in countries to which Christian civilization has spread, large numbers of people have covered themselves with a decent but thin veneer of Christianity. They have allowed themselves to become somewhat involved, enough to be respectable, but not enough to be uncomfortable. Their religion is, great, is a great soft cushion. It protects them from hard unpleasantness of life while changing its place and shape to suit their convenience. No wonder the cynics speak of hypocrites in the church and dismiss Christianity as a religion of escapism. No truer words could be said. And so avoiding Temporary false faith demands as way of application that sinners honestly assess their motives. They examine the genuineness of their repentance and determine whether they are ready to keep the, their commitment to Christ, demand for, as His follower. None of those things, as noted above, are human works that can earn salvation, which is by faith alone. Rather, they are distinguishing marks of true faith. They are distinguishing marks of a faith that works, and apart from which is nothing more than a non-saving delusion. And so, you have the abandonment of past priorities, the appraisal of present powers, and finally, the allegiance to future privileges. The allegiance to future privileges, committing to lifelong loyalty, to Him. Look at verses 34 and 35. Therefore salt is good. If, it, if even salt has become tasteless, then what will it be seasoned? It is useless either for, for the soil or for the manure pile. It is thrown out. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Salt was widely used before the advent of refrigeration as a preservative. It was also associated in the Old Testament with covenants and with sacrifices. Salt normally does not degrade or else it would be of little value as a preservative. I'm not aware in nearly 50 years of life of ever seen salt that's gone bad. But perhaps it has. I haven't noticed. Salt from the vicinity of the Dead Sea was contaminated with gypsum and if not processed correct, correctly, could lose its effectiveness and become tasteless, though it still looked like salt and had the consistency and texture of salt. As the Lord's rhetorical question, "Even if salt has become tasteless, what with what will it be seasoned?" indicates that such salt is useless for either soil as a fertilizer or for the manure pile since it would, since it would de- decompose. They would put salt on the manure on the household waste. And when they took it to the dung pile and dumped it out, they would salt it with salt to, to uh, uh, not preserve it, but it would take away the smell, the odor. It would, it would desensitize it, if you will. It could only be used rather to keep the footpath free of vegetation or just thrown out. And so if it was no good salt, you'd know soon enough that whatever you threw it on didn't die or kept smelling. Well this illustration shows that Jesus does not want temporary disciples. He didn't want a temporary disciple, but rather those who will commit to a lifelong loyalty to Him. A loyalty to Him of of cross-bearing, of denying themselves, only those disciples can be used for Him for good in this world. It is true that no one perfectly keeps his commitment to the Lord. That's right. That is true. No one keeps it perfectly. But, there are times when it falters due to family pressure, or selfishness, or the allure of material possessions, or when believers wonder if they have, res- they have the resolve to love and obey the Lord to the end. However, I want you to write this down. Moments of failure do not invalidate the direction of the heart. Moments of failure do not invalidate the directions of the heart. On the other hand, temporary disciples are ultimately useless to the Lord, like contaminated salt. Those contaminated by worldliness will be thrown into eternal judgment. That's just the reality. And so finally Jesus closes with the colloquial expression. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. This is a familiar saying in that it challenges, it it is a challenge to listen. It is a challenge to understand and it is a challenge to embrace the message. It is an argument, it is an urgent call for people to respond before it's too late. And it is a judgment of Jesus, who warned that if you that that he warned that that seeing they may not see and hearing they may not understand. Let him who has ears to hear, let him let them hear. So you have the abandonment of past priorities. You have the appraisal of present powers and you have the allegiance of future privileges. These are the true marks of a disciple of Jesus Christ. These are the true marks of a person who is born again, who is saved. Let me ask you a couple questions. This is the Gospel. This is the Gospel of Jesus Christ. This is the Gospel as Jesus taught it. These are His words. I want to talk to you as we finish, what you must know. If you're to make this kind of commitment to Jesus Christ, you need to know the truth. You need to know the sinless life of Jesus. You, you, you must know the sin-bearing death of Jesus. You need to know the bodily resurrection of Jesus. You need to know the gospel invitation of Jesus. Come, follow me. And here's what you must see. If you want to become a follower of Jesus, There's something you must must feel. There's something you must feel. You must know and you must feel. You must feel that you need Him. You need to feel it, that you need Him. You must feel the conviction of the Holy Spirit. You must feel your own unbelief. You must feel your lack of righteousness. Indeed, you must feel the gravity of the final judgment. Do you feel the hopelessness of your condition before God without faith in Christ? Do you feel your hopelessness before God because you're not truly a disciple of Jesus? You have the thin veneer of Christianity but no root. This is what what we must feel when measured next to God's perfect holiness and it's a correct response to His judgment. This is what you must do. Not only what you must know and what you must feel, but this is what you must do. If you're to follow Christ, there's something you must do. It's not enough for you to know these truths of the Gospel. Nor is it enough for you to feel your need for Jesus. Here's what you need to do. You need to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. You need to believe on Him. You must repent and believe the Gospel. Jesus Christ has come to save sinners. You must have a change of mind about how you feel and what you know about your past, your present, and your future. You must change your direction. You have to walk another way, walking in a different way. And you have to change your will. Will you believe Him? Will you believe Him? Will you trust Him? Will you acknowledge His right to rule over your life? And will you deny yourself and take up your cross and follow Him? Have you done this? Have you committed your life to Christ? Are you a disciple of Jesus? Do these marks have any resemblance in your life that we've talked about? Have you turned away from your pursuit of sin? Have you entrusted your life to His saving hands? Have you, have you surrendered yourself to the One who died Himself upon the tree for your sins? Oh, it is my prayer that you have done so. And have not, you will do so. And you will do so now. Heavenly Father, I thank You for this Word. I thank You for its truth, its power, its example to us, its call to truth. Father, that's why we call this ministry, Transformative Truth. There can be no transformation without truth, and truth always transforms. Father, these are the blessed words of Jesus Christ. We cannot throw them aside, and in the context of which they are written, it is evidently clear that what we have been speaking is exactly what He meant to say. And Father, He is calling. We thank You that even now, He is calling for the whosoever will believe. He is calling for people to believe the gospel, to take up their cross, denying themselves and follow Him. He's not calling people to Christianity light. He's not calling them for a social acquiescence into who Christ is or to a a psychological um, ecstasy from following Him. He's calling us to go wherever He leads and to do whatever He wants and to give all that we have. That is what it means to consider the cost of following Christ. It is my prayer that all who will receive this gospel will receive it today, will receive it earnestly, and will follow after Jesus and the marks of a true disciple will be evident by means of encouragement and exhortation in their lives. I pray this believing on my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Now may the Lord bless you and keep you. May he make His face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. May the countenance of the Lord be lifted upon you and give you peace. For from Him and through Him and to Him are all things for the glory of Jesus Christ. Amen and amen.